Jordan, how do you want me to intro you on the pod? Should I call you a media maven? Oh, that sounds <laughs> awful. <laughs> but, yes. But, I mean, you know, whatever you want to do. All right, so I'm introing Kate and then Gabby, and then I will intro Jordan. Jordan, I'll ask you a couple of dumb questions about, you know, how'd you start watching the show? Sure. You know, remember when Ken did that thing? That was awesome, etc. Um, I mean, the answer to that will probably be no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. This is going to go really well. Ha- Should we mention yes. that three yeah, out of four of us have watched an episode together? If we you want to make me feel really bad, yeah. Uh, what? So if you want to make me feel really left out, then yeah. Oh. You <laughs> <laughs> you, that was when you were in the thread and you were in the chat. You were like, we can be recording right now. Exactly. <laughs> 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 Exactly. I don't, I don't know that we were all in the right state of mind for that. Some of, yeah, some of you were in the room, Not yeah. Crying. Mom, <laughs> um, I'm in here. I'm podcasting. I'm I, mean, I, fairness, I am at my parents' house in New Jersey, and I did say my mom, don't come in my room. <laughs> <laughs> I still haven't mastered the introducing these things, but you know, all things take time. And hello, if you're listening to this, you're listening to the Roycast, the Internet's only succession podcast. My name is Brendan. I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Kate here. I and Gabby. It's Gabby. And we are joined today by a good friend of ours, Gadfly and Media Maven, Jordan Fryman. Hello, Jordan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cut out the Gabby for me too. I, was, I don't know why I did that. No, that's staying in. Sorry. No. <laughs> that was cute. I like that. You like the, the, the producer is the producer is a cruel is a cruel taskmaster. I personally don't think you should cut any of this. This all sounds great so far. <laughs> yeah, this is this We're is organic, this, this, this is what we call room tone. You know, it's just it's all it's all good. It's all good. It all sets the mood. Um, <laughs> So Jordan, um, you uh, you belong to the uh, the uh, infamous uh, the leftovers group chat, and that was where we all met. And uh, how did you start watching Succession? Um, I started watching Succession the way I sort of start watching every HBO show, which is that I'm um, sitting on my couch watching whatever show happens to be on Sunday night, and then there's a trailer for some other thing. I'm like, yeah, I'm already sitting here. I guess I'll watch that. It's persuasive. It's persuasive marketing. I feel like that was the same way it started for me too. So you were were you a day one fly guy? Uh yes. So you were watching from the pilot onward. Yeah, I, I I watched the first episode because I like I said, I saw a trailer and was like, sure. But also, uh I I mean I'll watch pretty much anything with Brian Cox in it, so Absolutely. Absolutely. Are you a big uh, Manhunter fan? Not really. <laughs> I'm, it's right. not, it's not everything he's in is good, but I'll still watch it. All right, you failed the Brian Cox test. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> we'll have to come back and do a Brian Cox episode. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, what, what, were, what, what were your initial impressions and just kind of, you know, what did you make of the season as it went along? I mean, I think we, we've talked before about this dynamic where the initial press coverage was just like, oh, this show is like weird. We don't know what to make of it. Did you feel like it clicked with you right away or did it take a few episodes to kind of get into it? Uh, no, it, it clicked right away. I, I, I don't think it was weird. I think it was just not 
it was not what like the trailer would lead you to believe it was going to be and i i guess that threw a lot of people off but like i don't know i, th- I feel like within like 30 minutes you should have been able to be like oh i, I see what's happening here yeah yeah so what was uh, what was like a favorite episode for you uh, as the season went along? Uh, well, see now now we're getting into uh, questions I won't be able to answer because it has been so long since I've seen it I cannot remember specific episodes anymore. <laughs> I, I guess is exactly the, why I, we asked you on. Yeah, I, I guess <laughs> the bachelor party, right? <laughs> the bachelor party, Prague. Yeah, yeah, yeah episode eight. But again, like I feel like that's just my answer more because it is, it's certainly a thing I remember. <laughs> now you and Kate and Gabby uh, happened to be in uh, uh, in uh, the Big Apple together, and you uh, had the occasion to watch together. Um, that was great. There was a dog there, so you know, everything's better with a dog. And uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Also, don't remember what episode we watched. I feel like we watched more than one. <laughs> we watched two. We watched Lifeboats, and then uh, what? What was the last one? We watched. Um, um, no, the shit show. Wait, maybe we changed episodes after. I know we watched Lifeboats first, um, episode three, and then I'm not sure the second episode we watched, but we did watch another one. No, which no, I, I thought I thought it was Lifeboats that we watched. Oh, we did. Yeah, but then we put That's, on another one. <laughs> and you got emotional a little bit. There was there were some tears. There were some tears. <laughs> were That's tears. true. There were a lot of emotions in the room for some reason. <laughs> Tommy was licking the air. <laughs> oh, that, that was a great, um, really good time. And Jordan wore his infamous jacket. The multicolored Levi jean jacket. Oh, that, the tie dye jacket. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. It's like oh my God. classic Jordan. <laughs> well, hopefully so, we'll be I'm able more to... jacket than man now, so. <laughs> <laughs> I hope we can reprise that experience at some point with the four of us or maybe the extended Roy Cast family. Um, that was fun. I'm Roy right. Cast family. It's, it's growing. supposed to be there. I was supposed yep. to be there. Some things happened. It did not make sense for me to be in New York, but I was I was sad to miss it. But yes, our, our Roycast family is growing Katamari style all the time. So I wanted to uh, today uh, sort of uh, start to break us out of the pure recap mode a little bit and um, dive into some of the press clips around the show. Um, just because I feel like it'll be helpful for what I wanted one of the projects of this podcast to be, which is to kind of understand, you know, why the critical narrative around this show seemed to shift um, sort of midway through the first season as people sort of uh, didn't know what to make of it at first and then seemed to kind of discover it halfway through, as well as also giving some people the opportunity to, you know, kind of give different perspectives on it. So I've just I've pulled up one of the early press hits about the show. It's a May 30th. Uh, 2018 article from the New York Times uh, that has this uh, very, very lovely photo of uh, the Roy boys. There's no Shiv uh, and Marsha. And uh, it has the uh, New York Times-esque uh, head on succession. A media mogul gets the conniving family he deserves. And I don't understand why the New York Times does this thing where they always have commas in there. They always have like excessive numbers of commas in their uh, headlines. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a style point I've just never kind of gotten. It always seems kind of uh, arch. 
New York Times headline style is actually one of the funniest things in the world. And there were two just absolutely phenomenal tennis headlines over the last weekend, to be honest. Yeah. Hold on. I'm going to read them now because I'm going to subject you all to this because I'm thinking about it. Oh, please. So it was for Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic, comma, Rome offered something novel, colon, a bagel. Uh, why? Like, why is it structured that way? Like, I, 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 yeah, I, I couldn't. Like, are they you... supposed to be punchy? Like, they get like they just get a they get like a perverse kick out of just joining all these dependent clauses together <laughs> without any verbs. Yeah, and then the other one was at the French Open, comma, four hands in the flora. Yeah, that tells me everything I need to know. That's like I want to <laughs> like know that is literally there. just an article about how there are plants around the court now because they redid it, and that's the headline. <laughs> All right, in fairness, in fairness, that does sound interesting to me. That's something I would. <laughs> so this is so this is just kind of like a. It's I think what's interesting about this piece. It, it's not an especially interesting piece. It does have some trivia we can kind of talk through, but I, I, I am kind of interested in the way that the show was pitched was very clearly pitched to like times readers as like, you know, like the, not just times readers, but like, you know, like the town and country set specifically, right. As being like, you know, Oh, here's a cool show. That's kind of like got a lifestyle you'll be familiar with. It's like about the people you like to gossip about. It's the people you like to read about in the style section. It's the people you like to read about in the wedding announcements. Um, this will be this will be interesting for you and it and how that sort of petered out and didn't seem to be a narrative that really uh, sustained itself as the people that kind of discovered the show were not like Times readers, but like people you know writing culture coverage for you know like pop culture focused sites. There is. Um, Succession takes the theme of internecine struggle within a wealthy and powerful family, in this case the one that controls Waystar Royco, a fictional media conglomerate reminiscent of a handful of real-world media conglomerates run by families with names like Murdoch and Redstone, and gives it a twist. Succession had its origins in a different script, one that Mr. Armstrong wrote nearly a decade ago in between collaborating with Armando Iannucci on the political satire series The Thick of It, which he eventually helped adapt into the film In the Loop and working on HBO's Veep. That script for a TV movie tackled the saga of a real-life media dynasty, the Murdochs, but no one bit. So that's that's bringing up the fact that this, this series originated with this, this feature script that Jesse Armstrong wrote about Rupert Murdoch, which everybody keeps trying to tie it back to because there's obviously a lot of similarities with like News Corp and Fox News. Um, but it's something that I think people continue to kind of make too much of because it's too reductive a view of the show. Would you agree, Kate? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just wanted to point out, wasn't that script in 2010 like one of the most sought after scripts? Maybe it was a different year, but like that particular script Armstrong wrote Army Murdoch was like one of the most sought after scripts but just didn't like it just didn't go anywhere this was you're referring to probably like the blacklist of uh, like the hottest unproduced screenplays in Hollywood which is this yeah, big thing that everybody talks ex- about that's exactly what I yeah this is like pre like when we first started talking about doing this show maybe like six months ago um like I, I recall reading the article, the blacklisted, yeah, uh, scripts, and that it it was one of those. Um, but yeah, I also I think that post, you know, as an aside, uh, besides that, you know, definitely um, all the cast as well as the producers and Jesse Armstrong go out of their way, as you said, to make sure it's not like a reductive, you know, version of the Murdoch story. Like this is we talked a little bit about this 
actually in the last episode, but this is like how one family's dysfunction can actually influence a larger culture whole. Um, and so, yeah, it's certainly, it's, it certainly can speak to Murdoch. Um, but, you know, as we know, it's larger than that and has more to say. Yeah, so I found, yeah, so there is an article from, from 2000, it was on the blacklist for 2010. So the blacklist is this, this list that is compiled um, every year that purports to be like, you know, like the the hottest unproduced screenplays in Hollywood. And it is invariably just full of, it is, it's always a lot of biopics. It's always a lot of movies about like real people, like the imitation gang. I remember was on there. Saving Mr. Banks was on there. Um, and then there are also screenplays that are just like, like one of the hottest ones that was out there for a long time. That was on the list um, was the movie passengers with Chris Pratt and Jennifer Lawrence, which was like, I don't know if any of you guys saw this. I didn't see it, but I read the screenplay, and it is, it's astounding how stupid that story was. Did you oh, see it, Jordan? It's a bad movie. <laughs> but it, just a real bad movie. Incredibly stupid. I really stupid. love that Brendan read the screenplay, though. I mean, my God, if he read yeah. the script but didn't see the movie. I oh, love no. it. Oh, no. Well, it takes less time to read than to watch. Um, but I, I just love the detail about how they uh, bring in, you know, spoilers for Passenger, but they bring in a character. <laughs> there's 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 two characters in the movie. They bring in a third, like, partway through to, like, he wakes up from suspended animation. He's the engineer. He gives some exposition about the script, and then he abruptly contracts, like, space cancer and dies after delivering uh, um, plot exposition. Um, really, really funny, and I mean, yeah, you can see why that would be one of the hottest uh, screenplays. Ended up being one of the like five original movies produced <laughs> in a given year. Um, but yeah, so the Murdoch script was on there, which just yeah, it fits this pattern of you know, uh, there's not a lot of original movies that get made, and if there are quote unquote original movies, they need to be based on like some kind of true story. Um, but I have read some excerpts of the Murdoch script, and I like didn't think it was that good or interesting and maybe it's just like maybe it's just like reading about real people makes it seem kind of phonier i think it felt it, it felt a little bit more forced and weird um to be reading like all this like profane armstrong dialogue but it was like rupert murdoch is saying this and i was like oh, it's just it's just kind of bizarre it, it just it feels a lot better that they, they went to the trouble of creating these these characters that combine all these traits and are more original and compelling than just creating uh, a movie about real people and imagining colorful dialogue for them. Okay, so this is another interesting detail. Uh, Succession is not HBO's first foray into this territory. In 2014, the network filmed but then passed on a pilot for a show called The Money, written by David Milch of Deadwood and starring Brendan Gleeson about a wealthy and manipulative patriarch of a media empire with a dysfunctional family. I really want to see that pilot. Well, I mean, yeah, Milch. It, like, it's probably yeah. amazing if, like, <laughs> unfortunately outdated by, like, 15 years. Yeah, as a new Deadwood head, you know, only 15 years late, but um, ready for the movie, baby. Uh, yeah, I would love to fucking see that, that pilot. I'm sure it's amazing. Let me let me run real quick down the uh, the cast list for the the money pilot because this is like again it's like oh, somebody nice. somebody please leak this. Uh, okay, so Brendan Gleeson, Andrea Riseborough, Billy Magnuson, John Carroll Lynch, Ray Liotta, Ruth Nega, Nathan Lane, David Harewood, Rosemary Harris. I mean, it's just like 
I, I I would kill to see that show. I mean, that's that's incredible. What did they kill too many horses in this one as well? <laughs> yeah, it seemed really. It seemed really. They just egregious. kept bringing horses into the newsroom, and you can't do that. The pictures <laughs> scare them. It's Milch's kink, okay? He was like, "Let me film this show, or I will kill again." Uh, yeah, I I, ju- I was just pointing out that this uh, this New York Times article, uh, the Times article makes mention of uh, Frank Rich's executive producer status on the show. Frank Rich, who was like a theater critic for the Times for a long time, so that's I think it's fun that they just slip in that detail of like, oh, this show is like part of the family, you know? Like if you're if you're a loyal Times reader, if you're like the person who reads the Times every day, like. Uh, cover to cover, and you're like really fond of Frank Rich for some reason. Like you'll you'll you will enjoy this show. Uh, Frank Rich is also a producer on Veep. Uh, yeah, he is. Yeah, so I, he's he's like a prof- he's like a professional uh, advisor to creatives who want to write about rich people. He's like, oh, I know what that's about. Um, which I guess is, 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 is I guess is like if you're gonna be a rich person, that's like not a bad job to have. Like you could do a lot worse. In and also, of- if your last name is gonna be Rich, just just lean into it. I think he has. He really has. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that part of the magic of the show is that it's not based directly on one particular family or story. Um, I think that would cheapen it. Um, I think that giving the viewer the opportunity to sort of fill in the gaps as they please if in terms of comparisons gives it a lot more um a lot more depth so like there are moments where logan is kind of trumpian and there are parallels in terms of the um the brothers and the and the 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 line of succession so to speak um to the murdochs and you know there's the king lear comparison so i think by not like pigeonholing it into some sort of biopic um that the show just, you know, kind of it has evolved into something that is totally unique, but also an amalgam of just all of these crises that that our country is facing, and all of the families and and forces that are behind institutions that are behind them. So, I was actually reading another article, a G a GQ article that interviewed the cast and the first. Um, read through that they did of the pilot was the night of the 2016 election and they were all at McKay's house <laughs> and um <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna say this is literally a plot line that's going to happen on uh, the show The Good Fight I can just see that happening Oh, uh, I haven't got. I love the Good Wife but I haven't gotten to The Good Fight yet but I feel like oh we should do a spinoff episode the about The Good Fight yeah, the show is pretty nuts, but I'm sorry, Gabby, finish, finish with your no, point. It's fine. I, I'm, I, I'm looking forward to getting into that because I was a big Good Wife fan, and I, I never actually finished The Good Wife because I was bummed that it was over, which is like a thing that I do sometimes with shows that are ending. I just like refuse to watch the last couple episodes. I still haven't seen the Mad Men finale, um, <laughs> which is like insane. Canceled. <laughs> I still haven't seen the Sopranos finale. All I know is AJ gets really depressed and like it's so blocked, dark. Blocked. 
<laughs> and that's through two watch throughs, okay? Two watch throughs of The Sopranos and then just like not being able to handle the very end. So I feel you, Gabs. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think I think it's logical if you're as invested in TV <laughs> as people like us are. So yeah, so so they were all together on election night. And <laughs> this is very funny and like so so Sarah Snook mentions in this GQ article that there is sort of an element of all of them in the characters. And I actually found out in this article that Kieran Culkin was originally supposed to read for Greg. Um, <laughs> and right, he, he said that right away, like he knew he was totally wrong for it, but he kept reading the script. And once he read Roman and saw the, Hey, Hey motherfuckers, <laughs> he said, <laughs> that's, that's the character I want. So, <laughs> so he read for Roman and he said that it was so much fun. The audition that like, he didn't even care if he got it or not. Like he just had the best time. So, so this, read through that they did on election night (laughs) Sarah Snook says "Um, I have a very vivid memory of Jeremy at the end of the night saying goodbye I remember saying I think are you good are you all right you gonna catch a cab and he was like no I'm just gonna walk for a bit and he just walked off into the night so if that's not the image for what's going on (laughs) (laughs) which is like a very Finale and <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't I don't know if they're gonna address the twenty sixteen election. I mean we we know on the show that there's a Bernie analog. Yeah, I just I wonder where they're gonna go with that and I hope that if they if they do take it somewhere that it's not again, that they keep with sort of the tradition of it not being sort of a direct parallel to anything that's going on. Yes. Um, the, it's yeah, still and, original. Yeah, and at the end of this article, there's a there's a quote from Armstrong, which I, I think says something interesting, where he says, without being highfalutin, it is a piece of art, not a piece of propaganda, he said before adding, I think it's interesting how the personality and values of one human being, even in a free society, can cast a very long shadow over an organization and over a culture. So Armstrong is kind of pleading there that, like, you know, hey, this isn't, you know, this isn't about Murdoch, this isn't about Fox News or people's political beliefs, this is a story about characters you can follow, and that's true and that's why we really like this show but i also think it's you know in in the context of this article it ties in i think to this effort to kind of pitch it as you know almost divorced from this political context which i think is which for me i think was a big part of the reason i connected to this show was that i recognize it's like oh this is a show that acknowledges some of the reality that we live in it doesn't it doesn't take place in like you know like billions sometimes feels like it takes place in this like completely cartoon universe about rich people like it's just like right you recognize some of it and there's some connections to like pre or like whatever you want to um talk about the real life parallels on billions but it's completely fantastical after a certain point and it has this quite comic energy whereas succession for me was you know it feels you feel sort of a relief watching it you're like okay you know like i'm i'm not making this up the way that i experience the world etc you know uh, it this feels right, and it feels like this show recognizes the way that I perceive 
the influence of the wealthy, etc. And and I think a lot of the subsequent reviews where people discovered the show sort of midway through the season were writing about it were a lot of people recognizing that same thing. It was like, oh, great, you know, a show about how awful rich people are. Um, but I think the truth lies somewhere in between. And I think there's a couple of different kind of sales pitches going on here. Well, I think the other big thing to think about this show is it's so much about family and family dynamics and is, you know, while they're a rich family, I think this is even addressed in the Times article kind of later in the piece that, you know, even though they're a rich family, we can all relate to the different happenings and goings on of a dysfunctional family. We see that, we experience that in our own lives and um, I think that's also a perfect segue to this episode, which is, you know, again, so much about family and really the power dynamic obviously influences how these characters behave and who they are, but it does come down to, to like familial dynamics, I think, um, which is, which is always interesting. And they, yeah, they mentioned in the, article as well and gabby's mentioned this before like they wanted to do a familial series like six feet under and and then the sopranos it also you know and the great thing they mentioned about the sopranos which i don't know if they do it precisely the same well they don't do it precisely the same way but they talk about how the sopranos is clearly a drama and in my mind Succession is clearly a drama, but that there's so much comedy happening throughout The Sopranos and they don't change the way they, you know, film it. They don't, you know, try to tweak it up and make it goofy or anything like that. You know, it's just it's just the comic everydayness, um, and they make it work. And, you know, I, I'd say that it's a little played up more so in Succession than in The Sopranos. I think the thing you point to is, you know, how is the show structured, you know, because that tells you what it's really about, I think. And it, and to me, this show has throughout the season and in a lot of the episodes, this clearly delineated, almost classically tragic structure to it. And the characters are designed in such a way that they have these flaws that are very sort of classically tragic they have flaws that they can't recognize, that they can't start to heal because they don't know what they are. Um, they're blinkered and because of their wealth, because of the way they've been raised, and they can't recognize the thing that's making them miserable. Um, so, I mean, there, there are some comedies that have that. I mean, like, honestly, you could, you could describe, like, Veep the same way, I think. Um, but I think, the way, I think the way that the show presents itself in this episode in particular... You know, I, I don't think it has anything that you would point to as like a comic structure. Like a lot of the dialogue is funny, um, but what's happening in the episode is not necessarily so. It frequently, you know, this episode and the next episode, I think, have elements that you would characterize as absurd. Um, and that's where some of the comic elements come in. But really what they're about is something that's quite uh, sad and dramatic at the same time. So the episode we're discussing today is called I Went to Market. If you think of, you know, one of the marks of a great TV show is, you know, how do they handle the holiday episodes? You know, this is the holiday episode. And to my mind watching this, I want to throw this out there. I don't want to dwell on this too much, but to my mind, I think this is maybe the weakest episode after the pilot or it has the most elements that don't quite work for me. Yeah, I actually felt the same exact way on the rewatch. I mean, it's still fantastic TV. Like, it's a very 
very high bar. But there were certain... I think this episode was an opportunity for them to sort of clarify and flesh out a couple of plot points that that would have been helpful to to progressing the story and instead we got a couple of sort of confused subplots going on Um, and I know that we we've talked about it outside of the podcast but yeah it it actually struck me as a weaker episode upon the rewatch I mean still a very very strong episode and I think there's a lot to talk about in terms of um of of family because this really was you know the first episode where it's um just just family and in a celebratory context so i don't know if we want to get into some of i mean there are very very strong elements to to this episode particularly greg and tom and um and i think logan's sort of um parenting style and grandparenting style and and ken's response to that um are are very very important and and we, we get to meet uncle ewan who yeah the story is a little bit confused but uncle ewan is um just a gem and he he had a very protracted role in six feet under and that's the first that i you know sort of got exposed to him as an actor and and fell in love with his acting and and he plays a totally different role as uncle ewan but yeah i thought it was interesting to to see him back in an h big hbo family role yeah it's i mean brian cox has a lot of good episodes but i mean this is like a really good brian cox episode i mean i know for specifically the elements that we can get into that don't work for me are kind of um the roman and grace subplot and i think the uncle ewan backstory um but i mean kate what what did you think i was just gonna say like of all the episodes because i do a rewatch i think we all do before the recording this one i was the least looking forward to and kind of like almost dreading not that it's bad because I did find myself laughing although it's not as you mentioned comedy comedy it's pretty dark shit but um but yeah so I I agree it's it's definitely one of the weakest episodes but I also as Brian Cox as Logan um kind of takes over later in the episode um regarding Kendall's kid um I did think like wow this is a really strong Brian Cox episode um I was one of the few people that didn't know Brian Cox prior to even watching this series you know he was never there was never like any really strong takeaway for me but again on this rewatch I did think wow Logan I mean he's really this is his episode where he really shines yeah, so uh, so I just want to briefly address um, the Roman and Gray subplot, which I think is I, I, I would love to read, and I, I have we've I know we've all read a lot of interviews about this show, so I don't think it's out there, but I would love to read um, Jesse Armstrong, one of the show's writers, talking about what they were up to with Roman and Grace, because it seems like something that they either changed their mind about halfway through the season or just sort of didn't fully commit to, because it seems like they want to tell a story about Roman's, you know, Roman's love life, Roman's, you know, uh, intimacy issues, et cetera, and his marriage collapsing where it's kind of echoing what's going on with the rest of the family, the way Roman is often used as a secondary character who parallels what's going on. But I know that all of us who have watched the season like five or six times were still kind of confused about the status of their relationship. Like Jordan, you know, like watching this episode, did you have the impression that he and Grace were married or was it just like a committed girlfriend thing? No, it it's oh, it, that relationship never made sense to me. Not enough. Oh, this is a weird relationship. I, like literally, I, I just do not understand what 
they what what they were like while watching it uh, until like several like way after I was supposed to figure it out I think I still think we don't really know like there's things that just make it very very confusing um so Kendall and Rava have two kids a boy and a girl who um clearly is is adopted um and there's a third little girl who's present in the pilot and is sort of like under Grace's shoulder. And she's also present in this episode, also kind of close to Grace. And Kate had a, a I think what makes the most sense in terms of a theory about this, that that's Grace's daughter from probably another relationship doesn't seem to be that uh, we would know if Roman had a kid. Um, but yeah, it just it definitely seems like they changed their minds and, um, when obviously the last three episodes become big in terms of Roman's arc with his love life and, and relationship to sort of, you know, intimacy and, um, and closeness and, and seriousness, um, in relationships. I, I, I think this was a great episode. I think, um, the actress who played Grace did a, did a good job and their, their fights were, um, compelling and made a lot of sense, but it just was difficult to sort of latch on to that with feeling like is this a girlfriend or are you married like in the last episode I, I tried to notice if she was wearing a ring and she was in this episode when they're smoking the joint on the balcony she wasn't wearing a ring she mentioned something about them not having sex you know they only have sex once every six months which would imply a you know clearly a very long-term relationship and is something that would be you would think you know would come up among a married couple more so than boyfriend and girlfriend but you know it's it's still just super unclear well and one of the first episodes also like um he's in the bathroom getting ready and grace comes and like kind of tries to start being sexual with him and he's like see this is why i can't have you living in my place granted there are i'm sure many people married that live apart what's it what's that guy's name tim burton and What's her name? Did so for the marriage. <laughs> Helena Bottom Carter. Helena Bottom Carter. They live next door. Listen, I've remembered that. That's the arrangement. Think, <laughs> that is the ideal arrangement in my world. So I've always like remembered that. But knowing they ended in divorce um, isn't that great. But so yeah, there are a lot of mixed signals. Is the kid at her, her at his house? You never see the child at Rome's place. Um, or Rome and Grace's place. Um, yeah, it's it's very bizarre. And I think, Brendan, really what they did was they wanted exactly what you said. They wanted to be able to highlight Roman sexual intimacy issues. So they threw her in there uh, to be able to get, you know, knock that point out earlier in the show. So it didn't come like such a surprise, you know, in the later arcs, as Gabby mentioned. I mean, that's my theory, which, you know, who knows? Yeah, I mean, this show is like, look, we've I've talked a lot in the past about how um, one of the things I really appreciate about the show is this confidence in the way that it builds out its relationships and doesn't feel the need to highlight who people are to each other and lets them kind of exist and demonstrate, um, you know, what their connections are based on. Um, but with Grace, it's just incredibly unclear, and I just didn't feel like it really came across, like, let alone, like, who they were to each other, um, and, you know, how that relationship collapsing 
is meaningful. Um, but to be clear, the reason I ultimately concluded that they were meant to be married was because when they have their argument at Thanksgiving, Roman makes a reference to them having irreconcilable differences, which is a which would be a weird joke to make to somebody that you weren't married to, um, because it's a specific divorce reference. Um, so that's that's where I ultimately concluded that they were meant to be married, but it's it's still just a very odd and half baked kind of subplot, um, unfortunately for the show. I think no matter which way you look at it, yeah, I mean, yeah, because it still apply to a long term relationship. Totally, and especially, like, coming from somebody, like, Roman is weird. That Roman would make a, like, weird off day stroke. But, but again, I'm not really making a strong argument here that, you know, ultimately it doesn't really matter. I mean, we right? see her at the end of the episode packing her bag. Roman's on his phone. Um, you know, clearly not too torn up over it. Or perhaps he is pretending not to be. But, yeah, I mean, it, it was a little bit bizarre how... Uh, and it, it definitely felt like they changed their minds halfway through. I mean, that's the only way that, that it makes sense because everything else has been so um, on point and clear and, and confident, as Brendan said. So, and so I, just, I just, I just want to say I, really quickly that Jesse Armstrong, if you're listening to this podcast, if you're offended by what we're saying about your writing, just come on the show. Just come on the show and clear everything up, and yeah. we, will, we will apologize. That's, that's Who's all older? I think, I think we can make maybe fit you in i we've got a tight schedule not totally sure but i i think we might be able to fit you in if 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 you want grace just one final point had my favorite moment in this uh episode where they're out on the balcony smoking you know not swag like really good weed and i'm not sure if grace or um greg brings up the biggest turkey but the the look of disgust on Roman's face about how it's a bad it's just so, it, I literally laughed out loud. It was so funny to me. Someone said, you know, maybe it does bother Roman. I think a lot of things bother Roman that he pretends don't. Yeah, uh, such yeah. as this fucking movie that he thought very similar um, to to that experience when I was watching the scene when they're early on in the episode when they're in Logan's office, the King Kim Jong pop scene, uh, local TV. Oh, that's a good scene. At the end, like a Roman sort of like sees out of the corner of his eye, the biggest Turkey in the world in the back of a magazine. And he makes this face <laughs> and in the same way I cracked up. He just looked like such an angry little boy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe we want to, um, start there. Yeah. I want to ask Jordan something really quickly and I'm taking your role Brendan I'm sorry please excuse me but I have heard some people have the theory that Roman is maybe uh, gay or possibly and I know that none of the three of us really subscribe to that theory although he has you know some intimacy issues so I just wondered Jordan your take on I'm thinking specifically of like the trainer scenes and if you thought or came away from the series or this episode um, thinking that there might be a... I've never ruled out anything about Roman sexuality, just for the record. <laughs> okay, yeah, I haven't said for sure. I think sure it's no, very but... possible he might be bi. Yeah, because I don't yeah. think Roman knows, right? Yeah, that's... Like that, that's sort of my... like. I think Roman's sexuality is as much a mystery to him, if not more so than to any of us, because uh, this is... 
like this is someone who is clearly incapable of dealing like with the with the concept of emotion and and self-reflection so i don't think he knows yeah makes sense i think that i guess we're all in concurment we all concur (laughs) we all concur um the other thing that brendan brought up that he was confused about was related to um or not that you were confused about, but that just seemed less um, fleshed out in the way the other subplots are, was Uncle Ewan, who, I guess in the first scene, right, yeah, the first scene of this episode, um, Cousin Greg has driven up to Canada to pick up his grandfather, Logan's brother, um, played by James Cromwell, Uncle Ewan, and um, <laughs> it's some, it's probably, like, the best comedy of this episode, Greg is actually the best comedy of this yeah. episode between this and, and the Xerox room. But yeah, so so that's how it starts. He's picking up Uncle Ewan to come to Thanksgiving, who has been invited by Marsha. Yeah. Shouts out to uh, James Cromwell, by the way. Real life uh, badass uh, leftist and environmentalist who has uh, faced prison time for environmental protests. Very cool guy. Uh, which is also uh, why I find it... Uh, which is also part of the reason I found his... Or the details we get about Uncle Ewan to be a little bit confusing because I thought at first with, you know, his sort of, you know, his sort of alienation from the family that they were making some kind of reference to Cromwell's real life uh, politics. But it really seems like he has some more sort of, I don't know, maybe kind of pseudo libertarian politics um, that have contributed to his rift with his brother, um, like the Bertrand Russell quotes and the fact that he's very proud of having fought communists in Vietnam. Uh, you know, all this like didn't quite add up to me and it just, it, I don't know, maybe, maybe it was just not, uh, immediate. It didn't immediately make sense to me because it wasn't a politics that I like immediately recognized. Um, but that seems to have contributed to his rift with Logan, um, the details that we get there. And I just, I didn't, I wasn't able to immediately make sense of it. There's also some details about how it seems that at one point they ran the company together because Logan makes a lot of references to him being stingy, to him being a penny pincher, um, you know, which would indicate that maybe they had some role in business together at some point, whether it was at this company or another. Uh, but I don't know. What what did you guys kind of make of you? And do you have like a coherent portrait of, you know, what his backstory was like? Because the thing that just didn't work for me was because of the by the end of his scenes, I just I wasn't really sure what he was all about. Like I liked seeing him, but I just I still didn't really understand what had happened there. And the hints they gave us didn't uh, lead me in any meaningful direction, I felt. Well, I think they might have tried to be purposefully vague and confusing about where his loyalties lie or what his politics are because of what is to come in the next episode. Um, and that sort of ends up being a twist um, with Uncle Ewan. But um, but yeah, when they were fighting Logan and Uncle Ewan towards the end of the episode, um, it seemed like there was, there was some tension there about the actual company itself and, and Ewan's involvement and... Um, says something about a begging letter and, and uncle Ewan says something about, you know, I got, you know, whatever, 30 million in the ranch and you got the rest of the world. And yeah, so I, so I don't know, um, if Ewan was, was ever a part of it, it does seem like he must have been at some point. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, the politics thing is also confusing because he says, you know, I, I see your channels and I'm disgusted by them. I see them in the shop where I, <laughs> where I get my noodles. <laughs> you know, he calls them a carnival barker for all the wars we didn't need. Yeah, I mean, I think it's weird and then it's it's confusing, like, why he was there. Marsha invited him and they mentioned, they allude to the trust and Marsha inviting Uncle Ewan and Jerry and Frank to Thanksgiving dinner. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I see where it got confusing there because um, does Marsha know that Ken is sort of brewing something, you know, in terms of a, a an oust of Logan and that's why she's, you know, warming up to to Uncle Ewan. Um, it, it's, it's very unclear. And then in the scene when Ken is talking to Frank um, in his apartment, in, in Ken's apartment, it it also just doesn't doesn't clarify anything about. I mean, he talks. They talk about Uncle Ewan, right? But. Yeah. So to to clarify um, what's going on with um, with Marsha, uh, it's so Marsha uh, has invited you into Thanksgiving, but she's also invited um, Frank and Jerry, all people who have seats on the board at Waystar. So there is a sense from what Frank implies is that Marsha is trying to get in good and consolidate some power because uh, Logan's change to the trust would give her, you know, a considerable amount of leverage. So she could be trying to merely consolidate some power for herself when she does join. It's not clear that she has a short term plan or that she's aware of what Kendall might be thinking. Um, it's not clear for me. It's not clear to me from this episode or the subsequent one um, that Marsha really does have much of a handle on where Ken's head is at. Um, it's possible, but I don't think that the plot really bears that out. Um, well, regarding Marsha, I think you know, watching last the last episode, um, Sad Sack Wasp Trap uh, gave me a completely like uh, different view of Marsha in terms that like she was running the show and motive and was the motivating factor for Logan to go back to work to um go to the go to the dinner and also to give the speech um she's his support I think while she may not have a specific plan in mind or know that Kendall is brewing up something specific, that she is consolidating power and, and making the moves that she needs to make long-term, no matter what Kendall's plans are. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Even so bring her something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So she brings a mirror. One of the things I wasn't clear about with Ewan um, was when he and Marsha you know, greet each other. And again, this is not again, but this is getting in the weeds, but he said, it's good to see you again, Marsha. And I thought, where the fuck have they met? You know what I mean? Like Ewan's been on the outs for a long time. And I'm just going to save this into a little bit of my take on Ewan um, that you guys were discussing kind of before. I think that could be wrong, but like most people's politics don't follow necessarily one specific ideology. And, and, Typically, if you're a libertarian, yes, like that is, you know, pretty clear ideology. But I think that Ewan is a little bit all over the place. It's very clear that he and Logan had a big falling out. We don't know necessarily, as, as we mentioned, if it was running, you know, the network or the business. But 
but I think, you know, those points are really clear and he finds himself, he finds the way he views himself as an extremely ethical man, like whether or not that's true, I don't know, but I think it's clear and how he speaks to them, calling them all vipers, sucking each other dry, you know, you're all after pot, you know, power. I think that I get a clear sense, at least, of who Ewan thinks he is. Now, I don't think we get a clear sense of who Ewan actually is, um, if that makes some kind of sense. But I think that he sees himself as, like, I guess as we all do in the right, but, like, like extremely ethical and, like, you know, does the right thing and honorable and all those things. And I'm not sure Logan would use those words to describe himself. So that that's my takeaway from Ewan. And, um, you know, I'm not sure if the politics and stuff specifically are, are that relevant, although I, I would be interested to find out, you know, if there were if more specifics to his politics, if he does see himself as a leftist, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, he... He doesn't seem to have any sort of cohesive political ideology, and so, but it's, I don't know if that's a deliberate choice, because, you know, a lot of people do not have a cohesive political anything, really, and especially rich people, they, they tend to be family, yeah. <laughs> all over the map. Yeah, like, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's bad writing or a deliberate choice, but it, it could very easily be a deliberate choice, especially, you know, especially with people who, like, kind of, sort of lean libertarian like I, they really do tend to be just like just all over the place uh and it's so like it's hard to pin them down because they sort of will like if depending on what they're talking about they'll they'll either sound you know like like a fascist or a progressive and it's like it's very it is very confusing and that does happen in real life like i said uh, especially with rich people, because a lot of because they you know it, their politics tend to be very self-serving. Yeah, the other big subplot in this episode is um, I guess before we get to kind of the climactic moments with Logan is uh, a continuation of our favorite arc, the Death Pit feat, uh, Tom and Greg. Uh, in this episode, Tom has a plan to carry out a cover-up, uh, but needs somebody, needs a, a hapless flunky to put their name to it. He's not going to do it. His uh, sort of lawyer buddy on this is not going to do it. Somebody needs to sign out the sensitive documents on Thanksgiving Day when nobody else is in Waystar, shred them, and then hand over the shredded papers to a sort of black bag operation that is going to uh, dispose of them to a permanent end. And uh, the person, of course, that Tom lights upon for this task is Greg, uh, who is driving from Canada with his grandpa, and as soon as he gets to uh, the apartment, is going to have to take on this task. This plot is very, it's, it's very just kind of plot-heavy, 
Um, for me, there's not a lot of room for um, much that's really funny or interesting to happen. There are some good Tom and Greg exchanges. Mainly, this is a, a vehicle to kind of set up later episodes and to establish um, an interesting response that Greg has to this situation, which is that rather than shredding all of the documents, he copies and keeps a select few um, so that he has some leverage to protect himself because he does have to put his name on these on the on the document sign out meaning that he's the only person who can be traced to this cover-up. I like the bit where uh, Tom is calling Greg and doesn't realize he's on speakerphone with Ewan. He's like, <laughs> t- Greg is like, oh, I'm driving my grandpa. And Tom goes, oh, Greg, fuck your grandpa. And he goes, yeah, you're, you're on speaker, Tom. And Tom, and uh, oh my God, McFadden has this terrific reaction where he just it's looks so down, is, is kind of half ashamed, annoyed, and just goes, well, I shouldn't be, Greg. <laughs> his face is amazing in that particular moment it's so memeable wait was that your was that your avi brendan from that particular moment no the avatar i had was the shot of him uh asking about the dog poop bag and lifeboats <laughs> yeah uh, canada with the healthcare and the ennui yeah, the the dog poop yeah. bag exchange is my favorite. Yeah, Jordan between them of in the entire show. Oh, it's though. oh, it's iconic. It's so tremendous. Yeah, Jordan, explain explain the little detail because we didn't mention it about that scene. If you recall, why it's so funny. Oh, but when you walk your because I know you about walk your bag. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, so the. <laughs> I, the yeah, the funny thing about it is I recognize those dog bags because it's the kind that my my cousin uses for his dogs, uh, whom I dog sit all the time. And those bags are actually scented, so they are kind of like I wouldn't put food in them, not not because <laughs> they're covered in dog shit, obviously, but just because they have this like weird yeah, scent to scent, them to cover scent. up dog poop, and they're I wouldn't totally I wouldn't neutral, want yeah. my food to smell like that. <laughs> Yeah. It's such a funny little detail. Like again, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but if it is, like it just it's so good. Oh, I'm almost positive that's not what they were going for. It's just <laughs> yeah. something I happen to notice because I unfortunately have to deal with that smell. <laughs> Greg so then Greg gets back from the document dump and um is immediately asked to drive you and back to Canada. And he like hasn't eaten anything. Um, he already got like put on this mission, much to his chagrin by by Tom. Tom taunting him, telling him a little chimpanzee can do it. Um, so we we see kind of like the Tom and Greg, um, you know, very very funny dynamic at its best in this episode, I think. And and Greg is just very funny while he's shredding the documents, but. Also, I, I like that we continue to see Greg kind of develop. Like, he's not just relegated to this role of this tall clown. Um, he's actually kind of concerned about what's going on. He's making these extra copies, and he's asking the guy at the front desk, like, hey, I'm, uh, I'm, you know, I'm pretty serious about my, my info sec, so, <laughs> you know, what, what, what happens to this book? Like, who, who gets to see it? Another moment that what I, I- with Tom kind of getting shit on at the end with Willa... Because throughout this episode, Tom is sort of flexing and, like, you know, making Greg have a miserable holiday. But we also see sort of 
um, some of the cracks in Greg and Shiv's relationship in this episode um, continue. Like Shiv is, they're talking about their prenup and apparently, you know, this prenup is like insane, ironclad, like down to, to the genders of what they're future children might be but there's no clause for infidelity and Shiv kind of just brushes it off like we're grown-ups nothing's gonna happen but you know if it happens shit happens and Tom's kind of like yeah like I'm not <laughs> yeah no, no, the, no the line is really good because the line is where she goes you know nothing's gonna happen but you know shit happens with travel and whatnot and Tom goes yeah I don't travel that much <laughs> travel yeah um, so, so Which I like so that because he's on cruises. How do you not get to travel if you're on cruises? Which is just like, well, oh, his job sucks so bad. He doesn't even get to travel for cruises. Yeah, and I thought they wrapped that up nicely at the end with Willa Connor's now steady girlfriend. Um, she seems kind of <laughs> unsure about that role, <laughs> but um, <laughs> Tom addresses her at the end. Sort of, they're they're so they end up somewhere like. Uh, by bathroom and Tom is like kind of just being a dick about like you know so can I can I get a greeting card like what is this arrangement is it most mostly financial and and Willa says you know hey at least I'm only getting fucked by one member of this family <laughs> and it was it was a great um shit on Tom moment because like, he earned it I mean he was just yeah. being an asshole to her so it's so good yeah and it's like one of the few moments Willa ever has I mean, she has some moments, but where she's able to shit on someone else and effectively, like, get a good own in. I really enjoyed that. I also like how the continuation of Greg and Tom, like, Tom just completely underestimates Greg at every, you know, at every level. Like, you know, for example, Sad Sack Wasp Trapped, him telling Jerry about the press conference and then him, you know, and then in this episode, him making the copies, it's just, it's, it's, it, it's really great and speaks again to one of Tom's, as you mentioned, the flaws and the flaws that they don't know about, but um, just totally underestimating Greg and how that's probably going to come back to bite him in the ass. Yeah. I, uh, I, I really liked, I really liked the parallel between Tom and Willa in this episode, and I think Tom trying to bully Willa is another one of the many instances in this series of people who are being pushed to the side or being relegated to a, a marginal status that they're not used to, um, and immediately trying to flex their power on somebody they think is beneath them. Um, something that Tom uh, honestly uh, has in common with Shiv. Uh, maybe this is why they're such a good match is because they're both constantly doing that um, because they're uh, constantly not able to exert power on the people they actually want to and are instead trying to flex on other people below them who don't have anything to do with their own problems. But uh, yeah, Connor and Willa is, is, is really fun in this episode because you've, this is the first like time where you actually really get some dialogue with Willa and you get to learn that she's like really into theater. She's a, a writer producer as I think Connor calls her. And uh, he uh, makes, he plays on that to get her to uh, quote unquote, go steady with him and be exclusive uh, his uh, call girl girlfriend, uh, so that he can uh, uh, finance her theatrical ambitions, which she is ambivalent about because Connor is awful and she uh, despises him. But uh, you know the money is a lot, so so she's gonna go with it. 
Uh, there's a nice montage at the end of this episode, which is sort of various, which is which kind of shows all the characters kind of like together, but alone. Um, you know, Willa is sitting up in bed next to Connor, um, not able to sleep. Tom is doing a similar thing with Shiv. Ken is not with his family. He's in the backyard smoking. Um, and the only people who are demonstrating any kind of real intimacy are Marsha and Logan, even though Logan is, you know, seems to be going through a bout of, you know, dementia or something like it in this episode. And his mind is elsewhere. Um, but, you know, he has a moment where his memory seems to come back to him. And Marsha quite affectionately, you know, praises him and supports him and is helping him take his socks off in a parallel to him putting a sock on in uh, episode three. So the other thing we haven't yet talked about in this episode is sort of Logan. Uh, although Logan does seem to be sort of um, brought to life uh, by Ewan's visit and their arguments seem to really engage him and bring him back to kind of his former self. Um, he also uh, seems to be struggling still with memory and seems to still be in the throes of some form of dementia um, as a result of his stroke. And, you know, at the end of this episode, they're playing sort of a simple game. They're playing this game that the episode takes its title from. I went to market. I've never played this game before, but, you know, you pass. They're passing like the can of the can <laughs> of cranberry sauce around. Everybody brings Logan cranberry sauce. Um, so they're passing the can around. You get the can and everybody says, I went to market and I bought X. And they have to repeat what everybody before them said. Logan, of course, is having trouble with this. And when uh, Kendall's son, Iverson, comes over to him to try to take the can out of his hand because he's lost the game, uh, Logan uh, quite aggressively fights back and smacks him with the can, um, bruising him and bringing the evening to an unceremonious uh, end. Iverson is on the spectrum, correct? I don't think we've ever mentioned that. I think yeah, it's another they- thing that's like, it's not said, but... It's it's implied and and it's he's he's not neurotypical certainly right. he's, they describe it yeah they describe it as having trouble with transitions is what yeah, uh, Rava says earlier in the episode when they arrive late to to dinner yeah and I, I think this really sh- like cut right to the heart of sort of the abrasive old school um, politics and ethic of Logan versus um, Kendall sort of more gentle you know kind of new age approach like i got very serious special snowflake vibes from logan in this episode like when rava comes in and says you know like iverson will be here in a minute it's having trouble with transition logan mocks it he's like make him come in and 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 you can really see uh um some of that up pull up by your bootstraps ethos that that logan comes from and and um, Kendall sort of trying to push back on it. And it's also reflected in the sort of business argument of the day, which is Logan picking up a packet of local TV stations and Ken and Roman kind of saying, nobody watches TV. And, um, you know, Jerry and Logan saying, you know, that's where most Americans get their news. And Logan has like a <laughs> really crude line about um it's called if you you know earn more than you spend um than your king cunt or something like that it's just it's it's setting up this um lead up to um the explosion at the end um ken you know sort of in the beginning is 
making excuses for Logan. Like he says to Rava, you know, it was really tough for him growing up, you know, different generation. Rava's kind of looking at him like, where's the support? There's some yeah. details about Ken we get in this episode where we learn that Ken um, used to work in Shanghai and uh, Logan is really keen to get him back uh, in charge of Southeast Asia, um, either because Ken was genuinely good at that or more likely because Logan wants him out of the way. Or maybe that's just the sort of venture that he has his mind on at the moment. Um, but I, I think the local TV stuff is, yeah, exactly. I think, it, as you say, Gabby. Indonesia. <laughs> Indonesia, yeah. It's, it's, Indicative is kind of a generational divide, not just in like sort of their attitudes and personal styles, but in sort of business philosophy. Ken is the new media pivot to video guy, um, and uh, Logan has this fixation on local TV, which, as we know from the characters he's based on, you know, like the Sinclairs, etc., for some of his political aims. Maybe it's not a bad idea. He's probably he's probably got something there in terms of wanting to consolidate um, power for whatever his. Um, business or political project is um but that also leads to a really funny scene we didn't uh, talk about um where uh roman is upset about how the conversation went and ken is, uh, is concerned about uh when the meeting is over logan is spilling his coffee and doesn't seem to realize it um another sort of instance of him you know not being all there uh, but there's some great lines there with uh i think rome says you know uh, local man doesn't realize he's getting butt fucked by Google, uh, referring to the local TV deal. I think he calls him Rip Van fucking asshole in that uh, in that uh, conversation. That's that's a lot of really good, uh, really good Armstrong dialogue in that in that scene. In that scene, there's like the critical moment where uh, Roman says to Kendall that you know. Basically, the only way to destroy him is to kill him, and that's what he'd do. And Kendall goes, I can't do that. And, and he says something like, uh, yep, well, have fun in Shanghai. But, I mean, that's like the ultimate, I mean, that is, you know, distilling uh, all of Kendall, down, Kendall and Roy battle down to, like, one line, like, what he needs to do. And he's just up to this point unwilling to do it which may change over the course of the next episode but yeah um, so i think this also propelled kendall to then sort of set in motion this plan for what would be at the next board meeting a vote of no confidence um and the first time we really see it brought up is um at his apartment with frank again sort of looking to frank for some paternal like guidance um on this issue yes yeah definitely because yeah prior to that i think ken is trying to kind of make peace with the idea that his father could be coming back and he could still remain in charge but this episode is where um logan makes it clear that that's not going to be a tenable situation um and yeah by the end of the episode uh after the incident with iverson jerry approaches ken and makes it clear that she would be in support of the vote of no confidence that sets the stage for the sort of mid-season climax uh, that uh, is to come in episode six. When I first saw this episode, I just want to say how much I really despised Logan, which is no surprise, but by the end of the episode, when he, you know, at, at this point, like, it's just part of the plot, you know, when I'm watching, but when he hits that kid, I mean, I was just, like, outraged, and, I mean, I'm sure we all were, but even knowing Logan, it's just it just crossed such a line. Um, particularly knowing the kid had special needs. Oh, the whole thing. I was so grossed out. 
It's pretty rough. I mean, it was not unfamiliar to me. Um, I'm not talking about anything specific, but just, you know, from, you know, thinking about some of my relatives, it's not, it wasn't, it, the, the scene, you know, kind of, kind of did ring true a bit. Uh, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a rough scene. And in a way, I think it, um, you know, it's, it's significant that that's the moment where, uh, Jerry approaches Ken. Cause that's, you know, it's, it seems to be, you know, even, uh, when they're accustomed to kind of, you know, casually cruel behavior from this guy, um, this is something that, that kind of crosses a line for them. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty, to me, it was pretty clear on the rewatch that, um, his sort of abrasive behavior behavior towards his grandson um was really just like his frustrations and anger with ken sublimated um because we see logan is able to be amicable and friendly you know when it comes to talking about his you know treasure trove of you know war medallions and whatnot he's very friendly with willa and nice to her and you would think even if you have sort of a, a, a just colossal asshole like logan roy that he would be compassionate and kind to his grandson i know that that's not always the case but um you know that logan does have the capacity for that but i think his his ire towards um towards ken sort of gets gets transferred on unfortunately to ken's son and it's it's a rough moment but by the end kendall goes from sort of making excuses and apologizing for logan's behavior um, throughout the dinner and throughout the evening to sort of being full on furious with his dad. I mean, um, the picture that HBO has of this episode, like when you go into the app, uh, is great. It's like, it's just a great dramatic shot, um, right after, um, the incident with Iverson, which did Ken name his son after Alan Iverson? Kate, I, uh, I think we have to assume yes. I think that would be fantastically in character for Ken. We have so to assume that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I so, never, I never yeah. even thought of that. That's great. Um, I thought, it, yeah, I thought it, it had to be. Um, but yeah, so we see Ken kind of. Um, at that point, he he really like says like, "What the fuck is wrong with you?" to his dad, um, and that's when I think, like Brendan was saying, you know, the gears continue churning that. He's not in his right mind. We don't know how much of it is Ken really thinking that he's not in his right mind or looking out for his interests. A little bit of both, I'm sure. But, you know, we can we see the stage set for what becomes, you know, pretty incredible epic episode. But but yeah, there's some confusion also at the end with Uncle Ewan's presence and um, you know, Ken lets him know that he's gonna have a vote of no confidence after Ewan storms out and then doesn't seem like Ewan is super receptive to that. That was also another moment, another Ewan moment that it seems like he really just sort of pegs Ken for this careerist who's trying to usurp his dad because he says, you know, he has his issues with his brother, but he's still his brother. Um, and I think that they have sort of this unshakable loyalty to each other as much as they may hate each other these two brothers um it comes up in the pilot i think when greg is begging for a job to logan logan says i'll do anything for my brother you know just tell him to call me so i I think the the loyalty there between those two is maybe you know the strongest familial loyalty besides maybe marcia and logan 
Um, well, I would I would question whether that's a two way street because I think my interpretation of that exchange in the pilot is a bit different. Where Logan is saying, "Oh, I'll do anything for my brother if he just calls me," is another way of saying, "Well, he's never going to fucking call me, so I don't have to follow through on this." Uh, that that that's how I took that, um, and I, I I think that from what we see of Logan, uh, there's a there's a moment in episode six where Ewan has an opportunity to demonstrate that loyalty. And Logan seems quite taken aback by it. Um, it's not something that he expected uh, at all. So I, I, I don't think that Logan has the same feelings. I think that Ewan's principles are something that are a little bit more unique uh, to him. Um, although maybe we'll yeah, get I it. Yeah, I think it goes back. I was just going to say, I think it goes back to like how he views himself as this like highly ethical, highly loyal. You know, he like exactly principled is the word. And whether or not he really is or is doing that to be that sort of person i don't i guess that's a question that yeah. goes beyond this tv show <laughs> yeah obviously uh being as fond as james cromwell as i am i, I really hope that uh ewan is a character who returns in season two and someone who has more of a role to play i think another thing that the show does really well is set up a lot of interesting characters and leave you wanting more of them and ewan is one of them um so i'm really uh looking forward um to seeing more of him in, in season two hopefully Thanks, Jordan. So glad you were able to join us. I did it. <laughs> Ladies That's and gentlemen, right. we got him. <laughs> <laughs> Does anybody have thoughts on an actual goddess Holly Hunter joining uh, Succession Season 2? Well, you're I'm very excited. This is, you've essentially broken that news to me just now, and I'm very excited. <laughs> I don't. Uh, I don't pay attention to things when they're not on. <laughs> uh, like three different people tagged me in that when it when it broke yesterday, which was great. Um, so I'm I'm pretty excited about that, and I'm also mad that I didn't catch it earlier because somebody pointed out that she was in a a photo of the cast having dinner from like April, um, and I, I guess I didn't catch it at that time. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, she is uh, playing uh, maybe some sort of business rival. It seems. Um, she will fit in nicely into the world of uh, broadcast news, um, uh, as it were. And uh, yeah, she is absolutely one of my favorite actresses of all time. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what she brings to the show. But with that, um, this has been another episode of the Roycast. Um, thanks once again to our guest, uh, Jordan. Um, Jordan can uh, no longer be found uh, online. Um, but. <laughs> But I mean, you, I'm 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 still kind of there. I just don't uh, I don't participate very often. So, Jordan, do you want to plug your Instagram? <laughs> uh, no, I do not want to plug my Instagram that has zero photos on it. <laughs> Too bad. Well, we will uh, include Jordan's uh, deactivated uh, Twitter account uh, in uh, it, the episode. It's, it's not it is not deactivated. I just don't use it anymore. Except I did tweet today. You did tweet today. Oh my gosh! Wow. Okay. You're coming back a little bit. Yeah. It's uh, it's it's, ha- it's Haley's comment. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right, folks. Once again, this has been the Roycast. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Gabby. We'll be back next time with another special guest for episode six. Which side are you on? Uh, until then, you can follow us online. Uh, we'll have Twitter handles in the show description whenever this comes out. And uh, yeah, see you next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks, bye. Bye. Ta-ta.